0: Bible and turn once again to the Old Testament book of Esther. Chapter 8 is where we are going to be together this evening. I trust that after tonight's sermon we'll only have one week left in our study of this wonderful short story which will mean it will conclude Lord willing in two weeks time after we i take our prayer meeting break next week. But let me get us going. It is, a, at least for Esther, a relatively long chapter. Let me just read all of it for us, all 17 verses. And then pray for God to bless our study and we'll begin together. So here now, as God does speak to you this evening, through His Word. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king... "'For Esther had told what he was to her. "'And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. "'And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. "'And then Esther spoke again to the king. "'She fell at his feet and wept, and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite "'and the plot that he had devised against the Jews.' And the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamidatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written with the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai had commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, To each province in his own script and to each people in his own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods." On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and a copy of what was to be written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, Urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a golden crown, and robes of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews a feast, and a holiday. And many people from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we do ask that you would guide us this evening by your Spirit, that you might illuminate the truth into our minds, that the light and joy of Jesus Christ would be present to us, that you might guide us, that you might lead us, For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was in 1954, I believe, certainly at least when he was 64 years old, that a man named Robert Watson Watt was pulled over for speeding in Canada. And the only reason it's quite interesting that he was pulled over for speeding in Canada was that this was the man who had invented radar about a decade before during the epicenter of World War II in England. And so as the ticketing officer handed over the speeding ticket through the window to Mr. Watt, his wife cried out aghast, "'Don't you know who he is?' And the officer had no clue neither who he was or what radar was at the time. And humorously and comedically, it was just not long later that Watt penned a poem to recount his misdemeanor offense. And the first two stanzas say, Pity Sir Watson, Watt, strange target of this radar plot. And thus with others I can mention the victim of his own invention. His magical all-seeing eye enabled cloud-bound planes to fly. But now by some ironic twist... It spots the speeding motorist and bites, no doubt with legal wit, the hand that once created it. And the reason I tell you that is because where we left off last week in our study of Esther was the story of another man who had taken a fall by his own hand, certainly at least something he had created as we left off with Haman, this enemy of the Jews having died an executioner's worthy death as he was hanged from the gallows that he had created for this Jewish man named Mordecai. And you can almost sense there at the end of chapter 7, there might be this sense of pending victory, of pending delight and joy in the Jewish homes of the time. But remember, the story wasn't over yet because yes, Haman, the hater of the Jews, he may have fallen, but his edict to annihilate all the Jews. That still stood and was very much alive at the time. And it's an edict that our text means to answer tonight. My kids, I wonder if you remember what that edict sounded like, what that law about the Jews' destruction was. You can flip back, and it's actually important that you do so, flip back to chapter 3, verse 13, because these are the words that came from the pen of Haman, signified with the king's signet ring and seal, a decree according to verse 13 of, of chapter 3, as letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now students, you want to kind of store away verse 13 in the back of your mind, because virtually every single one of those phrases is going to show up again tonight. But it's gonna show up again in a pattern that I would trust by now we are well accustomed to in Esther, and this is pattern of a reversal. Because now all of those phrases are going to be reversed. No longer are they gonna be pointed at the Jewish people, but they're gonna be coming from the Jewish people, pointed at their enemies. so the simple theme that's before us in these 17 verses is the announcement of a holy war. We might say a holy war is announced. It doesn't come to its completion and its definitive climactic point until next week. But certainly at this point in the story, it genuinely is a hot war that's about ready to erupt there in the area of Susa and throughout all of the king's provinces. And I hope that those of you that have been with us in recent weeks, as we've Slowly but surely been going through these chapters. You've seen the same themes show up over and over. And you'll see them show up once again tonight. Not least of which is this essential theme of God's guiding hand of providence. Always working behind the scenes in every part of the story. Because you might remember that God's name is never directly mentioned in this book. God never directly intervenes in the story. But we keep seeing how his hidden fingerprints of providence are always tracing out every single action, every single circumstance, to bring his good purpose to pass in the lives of his people. And it's a story that's meant to train you as you consider God's work in your life, in your own story. Because there's truth to, I'm sure, every one of you in here tonight, you haven't had God speak to you directly in audible revelation. You probably never had God directly intervene in your life in a way that's totally unmistakable. But perhaps in the passage of time and As you can look back on years and decades previous, you realize that his hand of providence was always working, always moving. And what this book is wanting to help you realize is those fingerprints of providence are often invisible. They certainly are mysterious and even sometimes altogether confounding. And so you'll see our text really divides into two simple portions tonight. Verse 1 through 9, we'll walk through as Esther's petition. Verse nine through the end, then we'll consider God's protection. So Esther's petition, notice the setting of our chapter, we're told in verse 1, "'On that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews.'" So this would have been later on the day after Haman suffered his death there at the gallows, 75 feet high, that he had erected for this man named Mordecai. And as was according to the ancient custom of the time, since he was found out to be a traitor, his entire estate would have reverted to the crown. And now the king who, of course, wears the crown, he has to decide what to do with all of Haman's assets, which, no doubt, given his authoritative position, would have been vast and many. It would not have included just only his property. It would include, of course, his house, his land, his livestock, his servants, all of his possessions, and likely, according to the time, even those remaining family members that were in Haman's household. And the king decides, Well, Esther, you, you can decide what to do with all of Haman's house. And you'll see what she decides to do, because what else would she do with it? But at the end of verse 2, she set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And it's really stunning to recognize when you see that just before he gets Haman's house, the king has given his signet ring to Haman. I'm sorry, to Mordecai. It was one that Haman was wearing when he was executed. And so you're meant to see right here at the beginning yet another reversal and a story full of reversals. Because the lot... That was Mordecai's has now become Haman's, the gallows. And the lot that was Haman's, all of the estate and the king's signet ring, has now become Mordecai's. And it's not the only small reversal that's going to come across the way tonight. But what you'll notice in verse 3 and following is that as her adoptive father, as her uncle Mordecai has received this vast estate that no doubt had much wealth, Esther has no time for rejoicing. She has no time for celebrating because the threat against her people is still very real. Destruction is on the way. So look at what she does in verse 3. She spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept. And pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. A common court decorum at the time would have at least frowned upon such a display of emotion. If more likely have cast out the person showing said emotion. And that... Esther has this kind of emotional, an understandably emotional outburst in front of the king. It's going to show us that this isn't some sort of performance before the king. This is her being sincerely distraught at the plight of her people and the destruction that they face. And once again, the king holds out his scepter, welcoming her into his presence, saying that she can make the request that she desires to make of the king. And I want you to notice in verse 5 and 6, as she's really making this request, how she front-loads her request by lacing it with these series of conditions. Kids, you'll notice really four if statements that further underscore what we've seen numerous times in this book already, her shrewd deference and cunning discernment in relating to the king. For look at verse 5 and 6. She says, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the king, the thing seems right before the king. If I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? I suppose that some of you might know that kind of earnest, sincere Sense of being distraught in prayer. Here you have a person coming before a king, asking for an answer that only his power can provide. And how often it is, isn't it, in the Christian life that we go before a heavenly father asking for something that only his power can provide. Pleading, interceding, weeping and wailing even for perhaps the salvation of a family member. For friends, co-workers that are on the pathway to destruction and they perhaps even know it not. But you notice there's a problem with Esther's request. It's not possible to revoke a law that was previously written into legislation in this kingdom. I have a friend that likes to joke about the times when he was growing up as he recollects his childhood and he would be complaining about the house rules that his parents had set down in his home. And He would always get this rebuttal from his father or mother saying that said house rule was a law of the Medes and the Persians, which means you cannot change it. It just is the law. And one of the strange inconsistencies that belonged to that ancient empire is that you couldn't revoke a previously written into law law, but you could write another one that essentially counteracted a previously written law. And so what the king does, you'll notice in verse 8, is he essentially says that to Esther and Mordecai. Well, you can take my ring and you can sign another law into power, taking my name. That one cannot be revoked. So if they can't counteract Haman's edict, at least they can try to level the playing field when it comes to what Haman's edict decreed. So Esther's petition now gives way to God's, Protection, you'll notice in verse 9 and following, these king's scribes are again summoned. If you glance through the text, it seems as though Mordecai has no need for time to execute a new law that will counteract Haman's. He writes it down quite Quickly, It's sent throughout the entire empire. You'll notice again, verse 9 at the end, that this is a vast world-dominating empire as these letters are now sent from all throughout the empire, from Susa the citadel, India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, underscoring the urgency of the actionists twice in the subsequent verses, how we're told that these edicts, this new law was sent on the backs of the swiftest horses. In all of the empire that were bred from the royal stud, the text says. And look at verse 11 to see the actual language of this new law that stretches into verse 12. It says that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, and children and women included, and to plunder goods. And one day throughout all the provinces, King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So kids and students, if you have stashed away in your mind the language from chapter 3 verse 13, all of those phrases that Haman had piled up on his edict, it's almost as though what Mordecai has done is just, copied and pasted Haman's edict, and replaced names. As now, this is another reversal, isn't it? That the very same killing, destroying, annihilating power that was now directed against the Jews is counteracted with a killing, destroying, annihilating power coming from the Jews in self-defense. And sometimes when people throughout the ages, you know, they looked at this language, particularly in verse 11, this vengeance that's meted out on children and women included. This plundering uh, of goods. Wondering how the Lord can allow such a thing to pour forth from His people. But you understand, if you know your New Testament well, that God has often done this. As He's inflicted His vengeance upon His enemies. It's necessary for you to see tonight that it's nothing less than they deserve. Which is why, even as God's people, we never want to dare tarry about the promise of God's judgment if we continue in unbelief. We never want to trifle with the reality of God's righteous retribution. It is this horrifying. It is this terrifying. It is a judgment that falls upon those who oppose His people. Thus the end of verse 13 can say, "...the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies." As best we can tell, something like 11 months is going to pass by until this war actually reaches its conclusion. Certainly, by the end of verse 14, a holy war has been announced. The clouds of battle are looming. And soon, they're going to break forth over this story in a climactic fashion at the end of the book. Two weeks ago, when I was last preaching on Esther, a church member had sent me an email I think it was the next day, it was, it was an email that was very encouraging, and somewhere near the end, the member said, I, I think that you might like this word that J. R. L. Tolkien used to use uh, when speaking about something that seems to be a theme in Esther, and it was a word that he created called eucatastrophe, which is just a combination of two Greek words. It means something like good destruction. And it was in one of Tolkien's letters that he wrote to one of his children. He kind of marveled at his own wit when he was writing about this term. He said, I coined the word eucatastrophe, which is this, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And it's very much true to this story of Esther. It is a rapid, stunning, surprising even, but certainly sovereign turn of events, of people who were On the threat of destruction and annihilation. Now find God's protection in a new edict. a new law, and it can't do anything other than to bring them to tears of celebration and gladness and joy. Because you see in verse 15, Mordecai continues his rise. He receives the royal regalia, even a golden crown that is great in size, and the entire city of this pagan culture of Susa is shouting and rejoicing. But what's more interesting is the Jewish people's response because we'll read it in just a second. But what you need to know before reading verse 16 and 17, it seems as though with just the mere writing into law, the allowance for their self-defense, this is how confident they are that they will prevail against their enemies. They're celebrating, they're rejoicing, they're feasting, they're throwing great delight and gladness in the light of God's promise towards them. It almost as though seems as though they feel like the battle has already been won. And maybe you know that there are times in the Christian life when even though the battle hasn't been fully won and finally won, God's people know the battle will be won, and so they go ahead and rejoice already because the battle is certain in its outcome. Verse 16 and 17, notice the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, There was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many people and many from the people of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. It's another reversal actually. If you remember at the beginning of the book, Esther didn't reveal her identity out of fear. And now you have peoples from around the kingdom taking on the Jews' identity out of fear, such as the sovereign power of God's providence at work in his people's lives as this holy war is announced. I've told some of you before that every other week or so I pull up a list of best-selling books, you know, trying to figure out if there's something I want to read or or listen to that may be new and, and hot off the press. And if you've ever done something like that. And look through enough different categories. Uh, you realize that there are certain perennial bestsellers. That no matter the time, no, no matter the season, they just always seem to be on the bestseller list. And one of those that has often confounded me in certain ways is this ancient military manual. Called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. It just... Everyone seems to still be interested in this military manual that I think was published sometime in and around the fifth century BC. It's as though principles within that book, leadership structures, are still relevant to many readers today. And it's true, when you read through God's word, it does give you, for the spiritual fight into which you've been called in Jesus Christ, something of a manual for the war. Something of principles for battle. And what I want you to see, even from our chapter tonight, are three principles that you need to know for this holy war to which you've been called to in Jesus Christ as we fight against the cosmic powers of darkness. I want you to see number one God uses prayer to accomplish his purpose. God uses prayer to accomplish his purpose. What is it ultimately? That brings forth this law that allows the Jews to defend their name and reclaim their honor. But Esther's petition. She, by the end of the book, seems to be at the end of herself. She's emotional. She has nothing left by way of strategy and tactics to gain the king's power and protection. She's only got a petition that she can make. And what good news it is, I trust for you to see tonight that you don't go to your heavenly father like she went to that earthly king, fearfully entering into his presence, wondering if he's going to even listen to her. Now you get to go into your heavenly father's presence, the great king over all of the universe, confidently, If you know Jesus Christ, certainly assured that Jesus, through His intercession for you, will lead the Father to take your requests and turn them for your good and answer them according to His own timing. We said this even a few weeks ago. Sometimes in the Christian life, you might say to a brother and sister, say, well, all I can do is pray and recognize you have the greatest weapon in your heart at that moment. Prayer to the sovereign God who can wield everything for the purposes and good of his people. So God uses prayer to accomplish his purpose. See number two, that God uses human governments. Or we might say government powers to accomplish his purpose. That's through this pagan king Ahasuerus. His name, his signet ring used to sign this law into power. that God's people now can defend themselves. And if you know your Bible well, consider the number of times before Esther during Esther, after Esther, where you see these government powers that are God's servants working, governing in such a way to bring God's purpose to pass. Of course, few places reveal that so clearly as even in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Wasn't it just the simple whim of a Roman emperor who wanted a census that drove Jesus to Nazareth where he was going to be born, of course, in Bethlehem, fulfilling prophecy of old? Wasn't it Roman leaders and even religious leaders in Jerusalem that lead Jesus to die a cursed death on a cross which God had decreed long ago was going to take place? I don't know how you tend to look out on the government powers of the world. You might look out with some degree of hope. You might look out with some degree of cynicism. Certainly, the Christian approach at least is to look out with a degree of assurance Knowing that God is working his purposes to pass through their actions, however confounding and even confusing they may be. He uses prayer to accomplish his purposes. He uses government powers to accomplish his purpose. And then thirdly, and finally, I want you to see that God calls us to identify with his people to escape vengeance. God calls us to identify with his people to escape vengeance. Vengeance, that of course is the central principle that you must see together tonight. For how is it by the end of our chapter that anyone in the land understands they are going to escape the coming vengeance? Well, they must identify as one of the Jews. It's true that salvation isn't found anywhere outside of the life of God's people. Salvation isn't found anywhere outside of the true seed of Israel, who is Jesus Christ himself, that you must identify with God's Son, and therefore identify with God's people if you're going to escape the wrath that is due to you for your sin, the vengeance that your transgression deserves. And so it's a great joy, isn't it, to know that just as Esther was interceding for her people there, that you have a Savior in heaven who's interceding for you every single day for the great king of the universe, that you too might know his promises, that you might too receive his protection, that you might too know his providential provision. And Of course, that is protection. Those are promises and that's providence that's only wielded for those that have identified with Jesus Christ, with fear and with faith. Perhaps tonight, some of you children, the best thing you can do with your parents is ask, have I truly identified myself with Jesus Christ? been baptized into God's people. These are principles of the holy war to which we're called to in Jesus Christ. A holy war has been announced in this book. A holy war has been announced even in our time in the New Covenant Church age. And we too fight the same way, don't we? Knowing that God uses our prayers. Knowing that He's using government powers... And He's calling us to identify with His Son, through whom and in whom the victory is guaranteed. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would minister to us your truth in the ways in which our heart so desperately needs it. Some of us need the convicting power of Your Spirit. Some of us need His comforting power. Some of us need His strengthening power. Some of us need His warning power. And Lord, we do ask that You would, by Your sovereign mercy and grace, help us to respond with faith and repentance in every place, in every station where we find ourselves. That You might be glorified, that we might be faithful to fight the good fight of faith. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.